You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey everyone and welcome back to Page to Stage, a conversation with theater makers. We're your hosts. That's Brian. That's Mary. To put it simply, we're both theater nerds. So let's pull back the curtain and get a glimpse at the artist's process while creating their art. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, I'm Megan Finn. I'm the artistic director of The Tank Theater. We're a nonprofit home for emerging artists in Manhattan. And yeah, that's what I know. Cool. Awesome. Well, thank you for having us here at The Tank. Of course. Thanks for coming. Just to dive right in, mm -hmm. where did you go to school? Uh, I went to uh, undergrad at the University of Southern California. I studied theater. I got in there the old-fashioned way. They did not buy my way onto the rowing team. I uh, I just had okay grades, and um, they let me in. Um, and it was a different time. It was a lot easier to get in back then. I have a BA in theater, and then I got my master's at Brooklyn College in directing. So when you went for your BA in theater, did you have a direct focus in that you wanted to become a director eventually or did you find that through college? I think I really wanted to be on the OC. Just kidding. The OC wasn't even a thing when I went to college. In fact, one of the girls I went to college with was on the OC. Um, no, uh, I think I just wanted to get the hell out of Michigan and um, I, I wasn't, I knew I liked acting and I knew I was good at it, but I didn't know, I didn't know what I wanted to do at all. I just knew I wanted to, you know, I, th I thought, oh, I'm going to study theater because I want to be an actor and that's all I knew. And so it was a pretty broad program? Yeah. I mean, it was, you know, a lot of people that went there are still working. Um, a lot of 
There's some Broadway actors, a lot of TV actors, and people are still working in the theater that went there. But um, it really was, I, I don't know about designers, if there's designer, a lot of designers from USC, but, um, but yeah, it was, you kind of studied everything. Do you remember the first time that you got involved as a director in a project? I actually went to the National Theater Institute at the O'Neill. Who? <laughs> <laughs> Back when you were born, the year you were born, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> um, and <laughs> um, yeah, no, no, you're you guys graduated. You're when you were four years old. I went to the National Theater Institute, and um, yeah, and th- and that's where I start studied directing, and I was like, oh. This is what I want to do. And so then I went back to USC and made them do a um, checkoff play. So I was like, you guys, I have to be doing checkoff. Um, yeah, wait. So what kind of art were they doing at USC? Well, you know, there was definitely Shakespeare. And I remember doing a scene from Uncommon Women and others. There was a really good professor named L. Zane goes by Ellen Zane now, um, who had a class called Sex on Stage. So we did Mac Wellman um, and Phyllis Nage. Uh, and it's a challenge. Oh, recesses of my brain. Mm. Um, <laughs> but more contemporary uh, writers, you know, obviously, like, you know, Angels in America. I was going to say Tony Kushner. Tony, yeah. Tony Kushner yeah. and all that. So, uh, but... Yeah, so it was contemporary drama primarily and some Shakespeare. And I was in a lot of plays. I was in a Greek – I was in Timberlake Wharton Baker's um, The Love of the Nightingale, uh, which was directed by my professor, Brian Nelson, who's uh, still a supporter and donor actually of The Tank, very, uh, a really um, accomplished screenwriter. Yeah, a lot of contemporary plays primarily, but not the weird stuff, not like – Except for the, with the exception of the Mac Wellman um, and Phyllis Nage, I think, for the most part, it was pretty straight ahead. And then big musicals. This guy named Kelly Ward used to do these big musicals, and that's where, that's where the the kids that ended up being musical theater Broadway, Broadway stars, they went through that program. So yeah, so we went to, uh, so I came back to USC, and I yeah, I knew I wanted to be a director. I directed my first play, which was Fefu and Her Friends. Oh yeah. Um, and yeah, that was that. Was there anyone at your school at that point or maybe even at um, NTI that you kind of dubbed or had as your mentor to kind of guide you through your early years of being a director? No, I was completely on my own. No, I'm just kidding. Okay. I, was. <laughs> I was like, wow, no, I sort of was. <laughs> I mean, I, well, I had learned, I'd picked up, I had, I acted a lot in college, so I was in a lot of plays, so I kind of picked up a lot from the directors. We had a lot of outside directors, um, and just kind of learned by seeing what they did and how they, how their process went. Um, I read, um, I guess I took, I I took a directing class with this guy, Donnie Levitt, who I think has quit, (laughs) quit directing. My friend is friends with him, and it's like, he just, he quit recently. But I was really kind of figuring it out on my own, reading books, you know, read like Anne Bogart's book and read um, William Ball, Sense of Direction, and kind of was like, okay, these are the rules. And then as I kind of kept going, pick like as I have always did with acting techniques, kind of chose, figured out what I needed to get to the finish line. And so I think I learned a lot just by doing. And I think as a young director, you really feel 
there's a lot of pressure to just do the right thing. And plus you have these big lofty ideas of how you see the, sh- see the show in your head. And it's really, you know, at this point, um, I have a very different process that I, it's a lot more collaborative than I was initially. So, Did you go right from grads, I'm sorry, undergrad to grad school or how much no. time was in between? Um, I started a company with my friends. There was a place called Stages Theater Center um, in L.A., uh, which was run at the time by this actor, Ari Gross, who's still a well-regarded film and theater actor um and he was great and he so he had this house theater that he had was founded by unesco and he had taken over as artistic director and my friends and i my friends we wanted to start this theater company and so we wrote this like mission statement that was like we will come and work at this theater as we are a triumvirate of artists and we will come here and we'd like to do a show and we'll be here to do as much work as you need us to. And and he was like, and we gave him this letter. We got so nervous. You know, we put together this whole proposal for him and we gave it to him. And he's like, you guys, just chill out. He's like, you can come and work for free and then, yeah, use the theater. And we're like, okay, so that's how it works. And, um, <laughs> and that's really is how it works um, still. Uh, but so, so then I started producing my own work in L.A. And then I just needed, I knew I needed to get out of there. Because people at, that, at the time, and I think things have changed a little bit, um, but at the time, people really didn't know how to go to the theater in L.A. It was they didn't know how to come on time. Like, you oh. Know, like oh, that's so interesting. Like they, it wasn't like there just wasn't a theater culture where, where people really knew how to see theater. And I got and it was really funny. I was um, I got an uh, internship, unquote, working on a show that um, David Schwimmer and um, his and a couple other actors that you probably recognize, but I don't know their names. Um were in that like a TV director friend of theirs directed very sitcom style and it was like in this little theater in, in LA but they just said like you know they had made all this money doing friends and they were like okay let's let's just do a play oh, you know we so want to cool. do a play <laughs> actually you know what David Schwimmer is like has come and seen my work twice he came to see a show that I did democracy and he also came to see the offending gesture and I don't think he realizes that I, there was no way that he'd ever realize that I was an intern for him um but I was I used to watch him do his yoga before the show um and um and, and it was like fun for me because it's like oh you know it's kind of novel just living in LA you end up in these weird especially in your 20s you just end up in these weird 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 scenarios because there's like all this money and fame that's just like kind of like doesn't matter at all you know and um especially at a school like usc so you kind of find yourself just in these circumstances where you're around celebrity and wealth and you it kind of um it normalizes it it normalizes it and also unravels the uh the the romance glitz and glam yeah so then you realize okay wait i want to make plays and i'm in the wrong town (laughs) <laughs> you know um even when i'm around like the celebs making plays these aren't the plays i want to make i want to get i want to figure out how to get to new york so did you find pretty early on in your career that you knew exactly what types of plays that you wanted to work on i was i found myself in a difficult situation <laughs> as an early career director because i was truly not interested in directing shakespeare I did not want to direct um, plays that I had seen. Mm-hmm. You know, it was this feeling of, well, if I'm going to tell a story, I would like to tell a story, a brand new one. And create that and be a part of that creative process. Correct. And not try to do it my way. Um, and so I think 
as I was trying to come into my identity as a director, there is a lot of pressure to kind of figure out how to be the director that you are, like um, in a kind of more German way, you know, which is, you know, or Eastern European way where it's like, well, this is what I'm going to do to this play. This is the me version of this play. Um, and that was just never what I was drawn to. I knew I wanted to work on new new writing. Plus the voices that I was interested in hearing from, there just weren't plays by them. So then I'm assuming your relationships, you were having to make relationships with writers very early on yes. to get to that new work. Yeah. So I, yeah, I, there's nothing, people talk a lot, like very romantically about um, their time at the drama bookshop and thanks, you know, thank you, Lin-Manuel, for, for resurrecting it and it's going to be great. And I love the drama bookshop. no hatred towards the drama books bookshop but there's nothing worse to me than like wandering aimlessly looking for a play because <laughs> you know like what these poor actors when they're looking for monologues it's like oh my god i just want to hold them and say like I'm gonna, I'm gonna go through my cell phone and give you like the number of five playwrights so you can like leave this place right now um anyway looking for a play that that period of time where i had to look for a play I just, it's its a terrible feeling, I think, because you feel like, oh, I have all this art to give, but I don't know where to put it, and I don't know what I'm going to make next, and that's terrifying. So are you saying you were one of those people oh, yeah. Wan- yeah, wandering through the drama bookshop? Yeah, 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 like, what do I read? Yeah. Picking up play after play, just being like, I don't like this. Were you trying to, <laughs> were you trying to find playwrights that you mm-hmm. liked, and then maybe yeah. try and find what they're doing next, or were you, were you looking, you weren't looking to tell that same story again? Like a revival. I mean, I would revive a script if it had like a production that I hadn't seen and no one else had. Mm. Um, I did a play by this, my first play in New York, which I produced. Um, I got, um, I just moved here and got a job and saved money and produced a show as soon as I could get enough people and money together. It was by a play playwright named John Mighton, um, who's Canadian. I found the play completely randomly at the library in Los Angeles. And I was like, oh, I like this play. Oh, thank God. <laughs> yeah, because when you find that play, it's like you buy it. Yeah, I'm like, I'm going to do this play. Um, so I was, and I was able to get the rights. Um, and then. And what did you like about the play? Like, what. It was funny. Um, it was about, it was called Scientific Americans. It was about um, the scientist uh, working on atomic, uh, atomic um, energy and the kind of pitfalls of of having a kind of insular scientific process where you're th- you're only looking at whatever problem you're looking at and not thinking about the the larger ramifications mm. of that and then it kind of um there it kind of from there he's living on an army base with his with his lover who's like who's like the fo- voice of reason for him you know trying to like get him to see the f- fallacy of of trying to just focus on your work and not thinking about um, what the ramifications of your work are. Um, and it's about science, a lot of interesting uh, thoughts about about science. So anyway, I, I think I was concerned with those things at the time because it was um, 2003 uh, when the Iraq war was declared. I had just graduated from college and so I was really active in protesting the war and um and i had a friend we had a friend that we graduated college with my my husband and i had met we were boyfriend and girlfriend and his one of his friends was one of his best friends in school and his roommate was very smart um engineer and he got a job working for lockheed martin and so it was like this moment where our friend was going off to build bombs and we were protesting the iraq war and and 
the thing that, you know, I'm a little like a broken record right now, but we're in a different political moment, but it bears a lot of similarities to that time. The thing to remember, the difference between now and then is that um, uh, generally like left, like left leaning young people who had just graduated from college were for the war. So, so it's like it's all well and good to like point to these politicians and be like, "You voted for the war, and you're the one person who didn't." But people were afraid because it, it, immediately after September 11th, it was like the our worlds turned upside down, and people were genuinely afraid that people were going to come and kill them. And so, a lot of people signed not. And so, I had a lot of uncomfortable conversations with young, and they and they're all liberal people. Um, uh, and now, you know, but I think I think it's easy to look at the past and and judge politicians and and judge people and think, oh, well, you you should have known. And I think we're, we don't always contextualize those things in the same way. Anyway, so that's why I was interested in doing that play. And so, yeah, I moved here and made it happen. And did you do a lot of associate work in the beginning, assistant work? How so, did you make a name for yourself? <laughs> I let, did it for let myself. Pe- let theater, did you, yeah. yeah. Well, okay, so I had this big plan. So I um, so it was just kind of, you know, I had my friends from NTI, National Theater Institute in New York, but I didn't really know anybody here. My first job, I got a job as a, um, it's very funny. I had an internship at this place called the Adirondack Theater Festival. Have you ever heard of it? Mm-hmm. We actually took a road trip up there this summer to see a, a musical for yeah. that one of our guh oh, cool was it wrote uh, where was it was it in a Woolworths it's now a theater oh, it's in a beautiful theater that they've I, I want to say it within like the it past it was an old storefront or something yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm wrong okay so it's a beautiful it's newly, newly renovated, like, newly renovated. okay yeah. so that used to be just an old Woolworths building I mean I probably am going to die early from cancer because of my experience in this at this internship which paid me a hundred dollars in beer and a place to stay um dollars <laughs> In beer. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, let me clarify. Free beer, $100, free place to stay for the summer. But we built the theater. They would build it in there every summer. Michael Greif was actually directing the musical at the time. He... um, he he directed Rent. I don't know if anybody yeah, knows. No, yeah, no, definitely, definitely <laughs> okay. no Michael Greif. I'm like, no, because I'm like, maybe Michael Greif isn't a thing anymore. Well, Jeremy Hansen. Oh, dear. Sure, so, sure, sure. Okay. so I went up to, I, I did that internship. So I had some connections from that internship. And I told them I was moving to New York. And they said, oh, well, we have this Broadway musical you can work on. Michael Greif's directing it. It's called Never Gonna Dance. They, everybody used to call it Never Gonna Run. Um <laughs> It was. It was like, and it was a direct transfer from Adirondack. You're saying? No, no. Oh. It was just that there were all the the managing yeah. company was somehow related to the people to Martha Banta who worked as uh, at running that theater with her husband. So my first three weeks in New York, I was a PA on a Broadway musical in a Broadway theater, and it was. I was like, well, I've arrived. Here I am. I just moved to New York, and I'm working on Broadway. <laughs> How perfect. How normal. <laughs> how normal, how yes. Common. How common. <laughs> but I was like, I'm not getting paid enough. And I, like, meanwhile, I was oh. like, I know. I was thinking to myself, like, oh, I should get... It was, I think they were paying me, like, $200 a week, which is, like, fucking great. Um, <laughs> just, like, just, like, you know, if you're going to be a... If you're going to be an intern, basically, like... I'm, so, like, you know, I wanted to be a director, so I was, like, you know, walking around, and there were two other PAs on the musical. Huge musical, by the way. Huge. It was so fo- cool. Because you get to see... um. I'm such an asshole. Jerry, he directs now. Jerry Mitchell? Yes. Jerry Mitchell was a choreographer on it. So like watching Jerry Mitchell and choreographies, it was amazing. I mean, it was just, it was so cool. 
even the props, watching the props guys, you know, make the props. I was just in heaven, like watching these dancers. Um, and it was a huge, it was a, it was a Fred Astaire. It was based on a Fred Astaire uh, musical. So, you know, it was just beautiful dancing. And um, yeah, I was in heaven. And uh, the other PAs, I was like, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? <laughs> I want to be a director. They're like, we want to be stage managers. We are equity stage managers. <laughs> it's like, so get on like, our level. So get, get on out. our level or get out. And I was like, okay. So, I mean, I worked my butt off, but um, actually Lee Silverman was the assistant on that show. And um, she she was out. Like, she got sick. What? Or no, 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 no. She had to go to a wedding. Michael Greif was pulling his hair out because she was going to be gone for a whole day. You didn't push her down a staircase. No, no, she was great. <laughs> no, no, I'm sorry. I'm getting to the point. The question was, did I associate to direct? Anyway, so I talked to her. I was like, so what did you do? You're, you're you know, an up and coming director. You know, she was like, you know, I'm associate directing because, you know, I don't want to do it in a basement forever. I don't want to just direct in garages. I want to, you know, I want to get there. And um, and the day she was out for one day at this wedding and she got her friend to assist and her friend who filled in for her that day was Sam Gold. And so within like three weeks, I had met like Lee Silverman, Sam Gold. And Sam Gold, it was like, yeah, I'm, I'm working over at uh, the Wooster Group. And I was like, what's that? You know? And um, so it just was like a very, it was a very interesting like learning. And then that show bombed. bombed. Never going to run. Never going to run. So then it was interesting to see all that money and time and effort and choreography and and rewrites and, you know, Energy. rehearsals, and hopes and dreams just like ran for a couple months and then it was done and so then I was back at the bottom and and so it was an int- it was a learning for me it was like oh you know you can you can succeed you can fail at all levels so I kind of learned that right away um and then I was doing my thing for a couple years and you know young people ask me for advice and I'm always like well try to get a job where you can make enough money but you don't get stuck because if you're a smart person and you get a job, I'm sure you guys find this, you're there for a second and then they want to promote you, you know, in a couple weeks, <laughs> you know, and they want to give you more responsibility. And pretty soon that's who you are. It's like, don't, it, it's always like, don't have anything to fall back on or you're going to fall back. Just figure out how you're going to make enough money to keep doing what you want to do. So I was working at, I got an administrative job at a school and I was, um, so I was, it was a dance school. And um, I, so it was like tangentially related to what I was doing and I was doing the job very well, um, but it wasn't where I was supposed to be. And then Julie Taymor was filming across the universe on the building next, the like scene on the rooftop on the building next to where I was, my office was, I had this beautiful window. Imagine there was a window in my current office. If it was a beautiful big window here, you know, right where a window should be. Anyway, um, <laughs> I was like, I'm going to walk away from this beautiful window and go work in a basement. Thanks, Lee Silverman. Anyway, so, and, and I, so I was watching her for a week and I thought to myself, I don't want to be here. I should not be here. I need to be over there. And that's when I applied to Brooklyn College. So that's when I thought my big plan was, oh, I'm going to assist. I'm going to associate. I'm going to get an MFA and I'm just going to assist. That's my plan. And I was really sick um, when we had a, a master class with Ed Bogart. And we were supposed to go and sit around a table and listen to Ed Bogart 
talk to us. And I can tell you, like, I think I, I think maybe one of the six directors, because it was the other, there were two directing classes. There were only about five of us a year, um, and only a few of us went. And um, I think probably I was maybe the only one that ever read her book. Like, <laughs> I don't think it was. Oh. I don't think you know what I'm saying. Yeah, like, you don't, yeah. I was like. You you don't know me, lady. Like I'm the one. I know you. <laughs> like, and if I would die if like one of my classmates heard this and heard me saying like I'm the one, it's not like you know. It, there's no one path in this, and everybody that I went to school with has done their own thing, and they continue to do their own thing. But like, I was like, I'm gonna be doing the new plays. Mm. That's what I'm. It was like a do. look at me. Yeah. Kind of moment. And um, and she was like, and so we were supposed to go around and all talk and tell what we were gonna do. And so, like, people were going around talking and, like, and the bullshitting and stuff. And I was looking at them, like, you're full of shit, you're full of shit. This was not my class. And in, in, <laughs> I just want to clarify, this is not my class in Brooklyn. This is, like, other years' class. And I'm like, well, you're full of shit and you're full of shit. Um, <laughs> and then, but I'm also sick as a dog. Like, I I, I could, I had a fever of, but like, we, 104. But we suffer for our art, so. Well, no, because I so wanted to meet him over. I had a high fever. Oh, yeah. I, had I a think I would go if I had the flu. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was very delirious. Yeah. So just watch out, Ian Bogart. If you're, if you ever hear this, like who you're shaking hands with, because they're there. They're sick. Because they're sick, <laughs> and they'll shake your hand, and they don't give a fuck if they have the flu. Um, so I just wanted to meet her. She had these huge hands, and so she's going around the table, and the, like people are telling, like you know, yeah, what they want to do, and I'm like, you're full of shit. You're full of shit. She gets to me, and I'm like, I don't know. I'm like high, high with fever. You know, <laughs> I'm like, I want to do a show in a barn. I do. I still do. I really want to do a show in a barn. I mean, I basically did a show in a barn. We did a show in the yeah, barn Yeah, that's together. the show that I've always wanted to do. In Montclair, New that's Jersey. That's the show that I wanted to do in a barn, and I did it oh at Montclair. Oh, my God. Do you want to do that in a barn? Yes. That would have been so fucking it's cool. It's going to be cool. One day, it's going to be in an All actual right. barn <laughs> instead of just in a theater. But, yes, I did that at Montclair. Yeah, so I was like, I want to do a show a in a barn. barn. Yeah, a warm, a warm barn. Not Michigan. <laughs> yeah, no. It, that, during the summer, it gets the summer, warm. Michigan, it's a okay. hot barn. It's Michigan um, murders everyone. Yeah. You haven't heard of it. Michigan murders. It's gonna happen though. You're um, gonna hear of it. You're gonna hear of it. Um. So anyway, so I don't know what I said, and and then I was like, and then I want to assist. And she reaches her giant hand over across the table. She's like, assisting is director death. And she's like, you, you're all over the place. You need to get focused. And like, and then she moves on to the next person. <laughs> and I'm sitting there and just like, I mean. The tears just. The tears just came. They didn't. I was just so tired and sick. And was I was she just, giving that kind of feedback to other people? No. And I <laughs> she climbed saw, so all she the way saw from potential. Williamsburg. Yeah. That's what it was. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, no, no. I think she just likes boys. That's what I hear. She's really nice to boys. Oh, okay. Anyway, but I climbed my way like all the way from from. Williamsburg, which used to be a cool place to live. And I went all the way, and I like, got all the way up to 116th Street to like meet Ann Bogart. And she was like, you, you know, she basically called me a mess in front of everybody and made me cry. And so then I was like, well, I guess I shouldn't assist. So now I'm here, no windows. Next question. <laughs> Wait, so you, so you actually never ended up assisting? I, the only people, okay, I should cl- clarify that. So actually at Brooklyn College, I did assist. I started assisting Sarah Benson at um, Soho Rep. Um, and, you know, I got to assist on a really big production that happened in 2008 of Sarah Kane's Blasted, which was a big deal. And that helped me here and there get things. And then we worked together on a musical called Futurity that Soho Rep did, co-produced with Ars Nova. Um, and uh, I worked with her at MTC on a show called That Face, which we, we did. 
Um, and I got a fellowship to do that. So, I, you know, I did some assisting, but it was really for, it was kind of like, it wasn't ever on a big, a big Broadway show. It wasn't, some of my friends do that. And and some friends I have are, have directed on Broadway as a result. So have you, Anne Bogart? Are you on Broadway? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I should you have know. listened to Lee Silverman and not Anne Bogart, but there you go. Would you give the same advice to like your students or people who you mentor now of saying don't don't assist just go off no. and direct assisting can be excruciating because you're like sitting there kind of stewing in your own impulses and you have no way of um getting them out and if you're really there for you it's a mess because i don't think i don't think you're able to get your voice heard in a way that would be it's not it's just not fun but you know something i heard uh artist Reggie Watts say once because he is like he started as a downtown performer I think now he's like the musician on one of the late shows um he and he's a really like talented artist he was like he's always working all stratospheres at the same time so he's not like he was not trying to just not do commercial or only do experimental only do commercial and ignore that part he's trying to work on different levels at the same time and I think you shouldn't make a call about what kind of artist you are before you've even gotten out there. And I think assisting is a really smart way to get to know people. And it's a lot easier for people to hire you when they know you. Um, and so, and people want to hire you when they know you. So I think it's a great idea to assist. I think you need to continue to grow as a director, not just be in someone else's room. But if you can approach the process, as what the how how can, you can be a part of making a safe space for the director because the director is in charge and the director is the one responsible for like everybody's fucking ego. They do not need one more. They do not need you as an assistant trying to get your ideas in there at the expense of their own. If you're looking at what the director is trying to do and as they articulate the process, helping them shape what their project is, then it can be a really fun process for you. And then you become part of the collaboration. And it's if you think about it like a collaboration, like you would with anyone else, then you have a good time. If you think about it like I have to sit in someone else's room and, you know, I really want to hang out with the actors and don't do it. That's that's my advice. In terms of your style as a director, I mean, I've seen a couple of things that you've directed. I was in something you directed. And I have an observation of some of the type of work you've done I see a lot of your your stuff is a little musical and poetic in a way and it, maybe that's something you're drawn to I'm I'm wondering do you see any correlation between your work and something with musicality sure I think that you and language yeah to speak very like generally as a director rather than thinking about like this is the kind of director I am if you just keep making things like the kind of director you are <laughs> It just comes. It just comes. It just comes. It's like people for like itself. it speaks yeah. for itself. Like people are like, okay, well, that's well, what Megan Finn does, right? And then maybe you're being offered something like that, or maybe playwrights that are in that realm are reaching right. out to you because yeah. they've seen that. I was, is that conscious? I think like part of it is like for me, I'm always like the play is the thing. The play is the thing. Like I'm trying to listen to the play, and um, and when the play asks for music, like there is like a world where I'm bringing it about in the same way you know I think my big my big scary secret is that I don't like reading plays mm -hmm. <laughs> someone would tell me that I have the wrong job because I program a thousand performances a year and I have to read literally hundreds of plays every year I love but I love reading poetry 
So, I mean, I could, I yeah. So I think when, when a script really speaks to me, there's probably just something poetic about it. And, and also, um, that's probably why I work a lot with like Mac Wellman and, um, and playwrights that are that way. And it, I think that probably evokes when people think of poetic theater, it probably evokes a kind of, kind of style that is not what I'm talking about, which actually is something that is very much Anne Bogart. Um, anyway, um, <laughs> and we know you're listening. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, Anne. <laughs> um, anyway, but it's not that, it's not kind of like, it's not kind of like epic or kind of, it's not very viewpointsy stuff. Like I do new writing, new plays, like that is very, uh, intention and and driven but it's it's more that i think i'm interested in writing that surprises me in the way the poetry poetry does if we talk about your process in the room as a director what kind of room are you trying to create for the actors your design team and specifically the playwright too do you do you welcome the playwright being in the room yeah or is that really case by case no 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 i studied with mary robinson who really taught me how to work with new new writing and i really learned how to make a lot of room for the writers in the room and i don't i'm not i don't think it anyone is gains anything by forcing the writer to not speak i think you need to make a room where you make where the writer can have a free uh, free ability to express themselves and that creates a space where actors too and and designers too we can all kind of be speaking um, about what we're seeing and hearing because um, we're making it together and I think when there's a room where the writer feels like they can't speak um, it's really bizarre <laughs> I think it's so weird and I think yeah, a I mean, lot it's their, it's their, it's their play it's yeah, like it's if, their it's words. A, if you're sitting in a room and you want to know what this means you can turn to the writer and say what does this mean yeah and then if the actor has a different idea or if um, or if the writer goes, I don't know, that's okay. The, yeah, I try to create a space where everybody can do, can really do their best work. And I think that comes from a, a room of yes, where you're making a lot of room for other people's ideas and saying yes to big ideas and letting the bad ideas reveal themselves. And um, I think that is where the fun is. And the danger is, is like exciting and... That's when you can really, you know, climb mountains when you're when you're making a space where everybody's like, yeah, let's fucking climb the mountain as opposed to I'm afraid, I'm afraid, I'm afraid. And I, that's that's where me in an uptown room is is still I'm still figuring it out because I think the more kind of moneyed spaces um, where there's a lot of ego and people are really worried about their Pleasing. reputation. Yeah, we'll see. Honestly, I get I get a little I get a little. Uh, <laughs> I said to Mac Wellman, when we were working on this last show together, I was like, you know what? I realized about myself. I'm just anti-establishment. And he's like, yeah. <laughs> he was like, yeah, duh. I mean, Mac Wellman doesn't say duh, but it was essentially <laughs> duh. It's like, yeah, of course you are. Anyway, um, so yeah, that's the room I try to make. Cool. Yeah. cool. I feel that. Yeah. Yeah. You're the artistic director at yes. the tank. Yes. For, for Five, four years, five years. Okay, longer? so I've been the artistic director for I've been a co I was a co artistic director up until August when I took over as sole artistic director. And you pushed somebody else down in the staircase. Yeah. <laughs> no, Frost, my theme. former co ad, went to, went to go be a screenwriter in LA, which is her dream. So we made it happen, um, and it was we're I'm very excited for her. Um, but yeah, so I have, but I've been the 
co-artistic director for two and a half years. And then prior to that, I was associate artistic director at a space called Three-Legged Dog. And we co-produced a lot of work with The Tank. So I've been working with The Tank for about five years now, but in various capacities. And so what was the, I guess, the jump or what, what how did you... Be- I'm not even how to board this. Yeah, artistic director. Well, yeah, but what do you do? Well, how did you go from? I mean, I see there's very clear lines in how you could go from being a director, working as a director, to an artistic director. And also, always... you had you had a company, or yeah. you've worked with companies yeah, that yeah. you had a hand in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I'm always curious as to what each individual artistic director's journey is to that role, because I feel like you can come from all sorts of angles. You don't necessarily like I know people who have come from working in like a development. Like a yeah. fundraising background, yeah, yeah. producing background, also yeah. a director. So I'm yeah. curious as to what that path was for you. Well, I was always producing my own work, um, which I think is a necessity for artists. I think, and I think if you're having a hard time getting your head around that, then you probably aren't in the right industry. Like if you want someone to just make your work um, and just give you a space to only be doing the fun part that you like, <laughs> you have to, I would say, seek out the fun in the other stuff um, because uh, producing is also very fun. Um, and so I was always producing work. Um, I went to grad school and one, another thing that Brooklyn College has is, was one of, was the first arts administration master's programs in the country. And, um, if you go probably into most organizations and theaters in New York, you'll find a grad of Brooklyn College. Um, and so we got to take, you know, a class where we learned about entertainment law and, commercial theater contracts versus nonprofit theater versus, uh, you know, off-Broadway and off-off-Broadway. Even so. though you were in the directing program? Yes. That's and cool. So, and then I started, I was working at Soho Rep at the time doing associate directing and doing and getting a space to do my own work and also learn to write grants. And so I was doing development throughout, you know, the time writing grants, doing fundraising. I still have to fundraise for my theater. Grant writing is a whole other skill set. I worked in development for three years and I yeah. never touched grants. I was like, <laughs> I will do everything else, but I will not write a grant. Yeah, I, yeah. Just, I, mean, I was an English major in college, but I just felt like it was a whole other like part of your brain it required. And if you had that skill, like go for it. Right. Well, I have to say like it's if you're good at writing papers, like if you're good at writing like an, an analytical paper, you'd be great at writing grants. Mm-hmm. And actually, you know, I think I actually love writing grants because it's very um, – you can be very passionate. You're trying to compose an argument about why something is worthy of funds. And when it's when it's an organization or a project that you're particularly excited about, it's actually you're it's it's almost like an op-ed. <laughs> you know, you have requirements. Um, but yeah, so grant writing is something that I and that was cool because you know now a lot of the artists that I you know or places that I get to work. I've, they already know me. Like I, you know, I wrote grants and so I got to know people. I produced um, galas for people. I produced uh, auctions for people and then they got to know me. And so then when I was working there as an artist, it was like, oh, I know you, this person, and I trust this person. Part of being an artistic director is you have to, you're, you, ha- you have your head in the whole company. You have to know what you're, like where you're, where the budget's at. You have to make decisions about, you're trying to make artistic decisions that are responsible and s- still like to the fiscal health yeah. of the organization. And if you don't, you run the risk of, you know, tanking the organization. Um, Tank. Tanking. Tanking. About which I don't intend to do. Um, but also, you know, but you have to also be thinking big and trying to make the, the best 
artistic decisions. Mm -hmm. So I'm still learning, you know, and I've, I haven't been doing it by myself for very long. So, and, and I have a very unique position because I run a theater that's like, like the combination of three different theaters that I could say that I love yeah. all in one theater <laughs> because we do so much work. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, with probably half the staff of all those theaters. So I, yeah, so I'm trying, I'm constantly trying to, um, to do better at my job. I mean, that's my resolution. <laughs> What's the biggest challenge? Is it the economic uh, um, portion? I mean, that's always a challenge in the theater. It's a, it's, it's hard to make money in the theater. I mean, a lot of, a lot of the things I see, you know, when, when going around social media, when people are like railing at the theater for various reasons, I'm like, kids, no one wants to pay for those. So it's like, I'm so sorry that it's so hard, but it's like, no one's paying for it, guys. And it's hard to get butts in seats for everybody right now. And so, no, so that's like the sad, sad story, but it's like, I don't care. If, 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 if I was, if I was tr truly like, if that was the biggest challenge that I'd be in, I would not be in the theater. I think that the biggest challenge is um, time. <laughs> Just like purely, um, we work with 2,500 artists a year on a thousand performances of 400 unique projects that I'm choosing. And then on top of that, and out of those 400 projects, a 12 to 18 are fully fully produced co-productions of new shows that are you know the challenge is just like giving everybody the attention that they need because it's it's an impossible job mm -hmm. but on a good day it's really fun um i'm still making my own i'm still directing um i love this place and it's a good energy and it's not wasted resources you know i hope that in the next um 10 years people come around on the model i think there's like some feeling of if you're doing which model okay so the tank our mission is to remove the economic barriers from the creation of new work by emerging artists so we do that by providing free rehearsal and performance space um and then also we p fully produce uh these shows so like i know what it takes to produce a new play and so i do a bunch of plays they don't necessarily cost as much as they would <laughs> in another theater but they are all we do, we put funds into them and they they're you know they're fully mounted shows that are up for critical review we had two new york times critics picks last year um and we're really i really want to do plays i'm sick of plays being in drawers and doing workshops of plays that get workshopped to death and no one sees them and no one, they never get designed and never get really get figured out because they never really got done. So, um, so we're doing plays. Um, and I think that there might, I think people have a lot of respect for th other theaters where they might do five shows a year. That doesn't mean that all those, all five shows are better than the, the 18, 12 to 18 shows that I did. In fact, you could probably find a handful of shows that you like better that I did. In addition to the shows that we're presenting, which are, you know, shorter runs and, in different genres. Um, so you might look at a space where there's a lot of use, for instance, and think, oh, okay, well, I can't really articulate uh, what it is all the time that I like about the work there. So like, it's somehow diffuse or it's not like, it's not like focused enough. I can't understand in a, in a, in a moment, like all the work that's happening there. So it's somehow not as good. The other thing is like, money doesn't make good work. You could do, it was like when we did we did Blasted back in the day. Oh my God, it was so long ago. Um, and I was ADing that. People used to say to Sarah all the time, like, thank God you guys did this play. Because if we would have done this play, we would have thrown so much money at it and we would have ruined it. And it was the best, 
you know, Time Magazine Best Play of 2008. It was like a crazy runaway hit. Like we couldn't, that's really started the Soho Rep that we know now. And that's not the first hit that Sarah has done, but it's like, it doesn't come because you have money. Well, it is so interesting um, in 2020. Oh my God, mm-hmm. it, I'm so old. It's so interesting to think about what is a, uh, appealing to those commercial audiences versus more niche audiences. And like those barriers, it seems are are really, uh, I don't want to say being broken down right. because they're being kind no, of no. like mashed together and people yeah. are like really exploring things and you see things on Broadway that are... Right. You see like ha- Hades Town or Oklahoma. Hamilton, Oklahoma. You see, well, those are all the directors that I've been just a few years behind. Right. like of, And I've been watching for many years their work, like Rachel Chavkin and... Um, and yeah, and you see you see this happening. So it's like, well, but if, in New York, if you no longer have PS122 as a space where new work is happening, it's moved out to Brooklyn, and there are really great spaces in Brooklyn, but where is this work being made? And, and who's this, seeing And who's, who can see it? Who can see it, yeah. So we're, and we're here on 36th Street, and, you know, there's spaces far out in Brooklyn that are great, and I love them. But, you know, they're out there. And we're really centrally located. So we have artists that work here from that live in the Bronx, that live in up, upper Manhattan, that live in Queens, that live in Brooklyn. And it's like a central located place, centrally located place. And I see good work here all the time. And and it's like for me, all, a lot of the woes that I hear about, like, oh, New York, where is the new work? Where can it get made? It's like a lot of those woes don't mean a lot to me because I see it here. And the kids are all right. And they're coming here still. And they're we're able to make their work if you give them a free free space. So, I hope that the city comes. I think I hope that the kind of uh, culture, the theater culture, like comes along with this because I don't see, especially in a in a time where the world is on fire because Australia we haven't been literally, ta- on fire. literally on fire. We haven't been taking care of it. I don't see a lot of value in keeping a space cold and empty all day while you wait for the hour and a half to three hours a night where it's in use. I don't really see that as being an efficient use of space. Whereas in a space where if we're paying to heat and cool it, might as well have artists using it all damn day. I mean, we gave away 5,000 hours of free rehearsal space last year. And so, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of good work towards diversity happening in theater. I think that's happening kind of, uh, before other industries. I think theater is really doing a good job of this. But how much diversity can you have if you do three shows a year? And yeah. if and if that's going to be the mission, yeah. then you're not being diverse because you're trying to probably overcompensate and sure. make everything sure. diverse. So and then also did all of the playwrights go to Yale? <laughs> can they afford to be the playwrights that you are producing? And so we make a space where, I mean, right now we're doing a show, Feel My Pain, um, Miko Gattuso, and uh, is has been a longtime tank artist, and he was in the first show that we did here when we moved to the new space, Sam Stishak, which I directed with Sam Soger. And he is doing a show all about his, he's a, he's a Latin king, so Miko Gattuso. He's formerly incarcerated. He's a comedian, great performer. He's he's currently, you can see him on Euphoria um, on HBO. But he, you know, he's doing a show with several guys who are all ta- talking about, you know, uh, the, the a life of, uh, a life after incarceration. He came to me with that project and I was able to go, yes, you know? And he, he giving these, giving people a voice 
And giving these artists free space is a huge resource because, as you know, there are only some people that can afford to rent a space. So when you have a rental or a glorified rental, curated rental, like next door to other theaters, only certain people can take advantage of that. And so I'm really proud of the fact that we are making a space that's really using our resources to make us make a place where the most artists can can get their work done. I was going to say, so I was looking at like your staff breakdown on your website and I because I'm always curious as to when you have an artistic director who like who are you working with like what does your team look like and you have a managing producer yeah. right mm-hmm. which I thought that was an interesting dynamic between an artistic director I feel like usually it's managing director I don't know if there's a difference in like what the breakdown of like responsibilities are and how you guys end up working together like an I feel like a lot of times artistic director tends to not focus on budget and staffing and maybe managing director does. Could you share some, shed some light on maybe how you guys work together? Danielle is really awesome, by the way. She's a new hire. She came to us. She was formerly director of public programming at LMCC. So she curated, she worked on the um, River to River Festival. Um, and she has a lot of producing experience. She also is a former stage manager. Um, and she also, um, she would actually be a good interview for this podcast, but probably you're probably all tanked out um but she um (laughs) but she you know she was a stage manager she just really has a really well-rounded and her husband is a well as a as a very successful uh lighting designer he won a tony this year um bradley king and um so she really has a kind of top to bottom awareness of like the world she's done the avant-garde she's done contemporary dance she's done she's like knows all the knows a lot of Broadway folks she's been a stage manager and knows what it's like <laughs> to like move boxes around and things so she's kind of an all hands on deck person and so am I so I, I think we're really partners in all things so we um, I'm doing all of the programming right now but we're um, but there's a lot of overlap um, and I think we want it to be that way because we're a small staff and I think there's it's just got to be an all hands on deck kind of vibe. It can't be a, a place where people are very segmented in what they're willing to do to get the job done. As you know, sometimes I have to vacuum. No problem with that. <laughs> well, yeah, when we got here, we opened the door and Megan's vacuuming. You know, I was here and I was like, well, I'm here, so I might as well make use of my time. So another venture or something that I think you're very passionate about is political and social activism. Sure. Can you speak a little bit about what you've been doing recently sure. in the past couple of years sure. with uh, reuniting families at the border? Sure. Um, I work with an organization called Every Last One, um, which is an, kind of an offshoot of another organization called Immigrant Families Together, and I'm a part of both of those groups. Um, Immigrant Families Together started um, after the uh, it became really publicized that the government had been separating children at the border. So I, uh, it was a playwright friend of mine who we had produced at the tank, Sarah Farrington, who initially texted me and said, you know, I have, we have this mom, we're going to bond her out in Arizona. Aren't you from the Midwest? Um, It just so it happened that I was from Arizona. I'm sorry, I'm from Michigan. I have family in Arizona and I live in New York. So within... 24 hours I had kind of mapped out a route for her um, with with friends and friends and friends and sanctuary organizations across the country just taking her in short leg, legs across the country um, driving her to New York so she could be reunited with her ch- three children um, and 
that just started um, my addiction <laughs> to reunifying families. Um, so it just hasn't stopped from there. I just have been working pretty much like weekly on cases. And now I work with a lot of um, larger organizations. I'm kind of a point person to help them with trouble cases that where they need to help get families from point A to point B. We've raised um, nearly $2 million. We've bonded out over 100 people um, and reunifi- re- reunified them with their families. We've um, help- we've kind of created a national network of rapid response um, pods of people that help immigrants when they're in trouble. Um, yeah, and I met a lot of great families that want to live here, and that's their biggest crime. Um, and it's been really... Uh, life-changing yeah do you think that it has affected your work as a theater maker uh or do you think that that's something that may happen down the line as you look back hopefully when things hopefully get better better. I think you know what it has you know there was at, at my at my alma mater at USC outside the theater there was a quote from one of the professors that said keep the drama on the stage um, which is something that I say a lot. Um, and dealing with artists every single day, um, it has uh, tempered the life or death urgency that something that's a theatrical emergency, <laughs> uh, the weight that that carries is a lot different to me now that I've dealt now that I've dealt with actual life or death or life or death emergencies on a regular basis and that kind of, it's really put things in perspective. So I think in terms of the day-to-day of this job, it's made me um, just more tempered in my my Not your care, but no, your... No, 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 your... not how much I care, but but like yeah. being able to put it in perspective. And I think that's a, that's a useful thing. Um, and then I've, I've struggled with um, figuring out how to, if I want to make work about this, um, it feels I've produced work about it um, and I've been very affected by that work. Um, we did, uh, Sarah Farrington actually wrote a, a one woman show called Honduras, um, which was kind of a um, pulled a lot of stories from several of the moms that we've worked with. Um, and we and I presented it at the, at the tank and I was a mess when I watched it because it was very surreal you know I was like sitting in my theater watching a show about me sort of and it was in the like strenuous couple years that it's been I mean it's been um it's taken up a huge amount of my life um and it's been like adding another job to an impossible job so that's not to say I don't feel sorry for myself about that it's just a reality that it's been a lot of work and I don't I liked I'm supportive of that project and I think art is important but I struggle with it because I just don't for it doesn't feel yeah. like my story to tell I, I was wondering that if 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 that was something that you wanted to directly get go head to head with in your work as a director yeah because in so many cases theater is that way to advocate and and bring to light issues plus like it's gross it's insufficient is what it feels yeah. because the actual event and and the necessity of like I really feel like if everyone had spent if everyone had the wherewithal to spend like a quarter of the time that I've been dealing with these things myself 
I mean, we'd be this wouldn't be an issue, It'd be a non-issue. It's not. It's a man-made problem. It's not like we're dealing with global warming, yeah. which is also a man-made problem. But the feels effects like, are yeah beyond beyond what, we can, what we can control. We're talking about a man-made pro- problem with where it's continuing, and it's completely within our power to change it. And so, um, and if we were all working to try to to affect change in the small ways, we could do a huge amount of good. Um, and people, I know people just don't know how to get involved. They're afraid. There's a lot of propaganda to keep them afraid to get involved. Um, anyway, so all that's to say, I'm still, I'm right now I'm interested in doing it and trying to still figure out how to balance the work that I have to do, the art that I'm making and, and still do that work. And, um, but also happy to make a space for people that are ready to talk about it or ready to make work about it. So, um, that's like the way I'm thinking about it now. And then when, when it's in the media and stuff, the only reason I ever do those things is because there's a direct correlation between when we have a big story and how much money we can raise to help the families. So it's less gross to me. I like, I'm like, I'm gonna just, I do an interview about it or whatever, because it's going to get, uh, I have seen you in the New York times and the Washington post. Yeah. So it's like, I do those things because it's like someone reads that article and then they give us money and then we can help the family with the money. It's very easy. Do you know? Yeah. Um, I see. I wouldn't think of it that way. That's yeah. wow. That's why, and that's like sadly when it's in the press yeah. more, we get more f- funds to be able to help them. Wow. So yeah. I wonder. I wonder if the same could be said if you did make it a theater piece, or if it became like a, like an art form, if it would reach more people that way. I don't know. I mean, I I totally agree with what you were saying. How it's yeah. it might be too soon, or you're too close to where it's not where your focus. Well, I wanted right to do a piece. <laughs> oh, you did. I wanted to do a piece. No, I work a lot with this artist named um, Pedro Reyes, who's a visual artist. Um, actually, this is the democ- democracy. Yeah. Um, so I had been just kind of plugging away and directing Mac Wellman plays because I met him at Brooklyn College, and um, uh, there's this company called Creative Time. They do large scale public art projects, um, and they did they did like the Kara Walker Sphinx at the Domino Sugar Factory. It's kind of Anyway, so they do large scale visual art, public art projects. And they kind of said to Pedro, Pedro was going to do this big, immersive haunted house leading up to the election. And they said, you know, who do you want to direct it? And <laughs> Pedro had seen like a, sh- a Mac Woman play that I directed three years before, and he kept the program. And so he was like, I would like you to find this lady <laughs> in New York City. So it was like, it was Search a very, all of Brooklyn. like, find, <laughs> go to Brooklyn and find this lady. So it was a really huge, I mean, it was a huge uh, thing in the visual art world to get to do one of those projects. And I got to hire all my old, all the actors that I'd wanted to give gigs to for That's years. So cool. So like, basically, I hired like every good actor that I'd worked with for the last five years. I hired them for this. It was like 40 actors or something. Um, and it ran in the, it was in a 50,000 square foot huge thing anyway so yeah so pedro and i are working on a project which may or may not happen um and initially the idea was to sort of create a um to kind of put people through a kind of fun house that was a detention center so to give them kind of a um a visceral experience of of what intake is at is like at the border which i think that if the majority of americans really understood that people are waiting in line um that the bridges to go to jail in our country they're waiting in line for their chance to go to jail 
um, so that they might have a chance of staying here. If people really had that experience in a visceral way that they would start to think, okay, well, we need to change the system. The system isn't working. If theater does offer a space where people are profoundly changed by a, yeah. by an intimate, physical, real moment. I mean, John, what Johnny didn't say is the reason he hates the um, the movies is because the movie will just keep going whether or not he leaves, and that creates a kind of terror in him. And <laughs> I'll have to listen to that episode <laughs> yeah, you of should. your podcast called. Yes, yeah, called Tanked. We have a podcast called Tank where we I'll tank the link in the yeah, description. Kind of, that's fine. <laughs> if you love podcasts, just don't stop. Just keep listening to podcasts. Anyway, um, so but Pedro always says something. Sorry to jump back to Pedro, but Pedro always says um, that art, you know, art theater is the most important thing. I mean, I think right after the election, I called him and I was a mess. And I think I probably said this to you in rehearsal, but. But I was a mess and he was like, I was like, I just don't know that anything that we do matters. Um, and he he said, no, he's like, theater? He's like, theater is the most important thing you can do. Coding, coding is made up and it's gonna be obsolete. Everything you learn in coding is obsolete a few, a few years later. Theater is, is the most important thing you can make. So anyway, I don't know if I believe that every day, but I try to anyway. Yeah. yeah. It's a nice reminder. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm always curious if you have a mission statement for yourself as a theater maker and what that would be. I don't have a mission statement. I probably should. Um, I think I, yeah, I don't. I'm sorry. I don't have a better no, answer to that question. Great. Yeah. And I get opportunities to work with these people. And it's like, I don't even understand how they happen. I was like, oh. it's, I think it just comes from me keep, keep, keeping going. But I can tell you what I like in a play. I like something that's surprising. Um, I like... I want to make work that um, is unexpected and um, uh, challenges people to have a kind of intimate, immediate experience in the theater that I'm not afraid of, um, of tropes. I'm not afraid of the things that we love and sensation or, um, and I mean that in the best Broadway sense, sensation. I'm not afraid of yeah, doing yeah, something yeah, sensational feeling. or um, larger than life or silly. I think I want to make work that is deeply silly in a way that um, that reminds people of their own humanity and um, get, get, wakes people up, you know? We're all kind of in this dream. We just spend so much time on our phones. It's like... We, I want to make a world where we're participating in conversations with each other. You know, we're not just gazing into our mirror that follows us around wherever we go. You know, mm -hmm. so yeah, it's a rough, rough and tumble mm -hmm. mission. We're recording this in the first week of of the new year, if you will. So I'm curious as to what you would love to see for a theater as a whole going into these next ten years. Okay. One thing that I, that I kind of was alluding to before, which is like I would like to see the theater embrace a eco-friendly model of production. And I don't just mean in terms of what the materials are. I mean, I would like to see theater like we're kind of at the low budget Netflix of theater. OK, because we are <laughs> doing anything. because mm. we are making so many things all the time. Like we're making a space where. It's just rapid and there's, con you know, in terms of like the kind of work we're, we're 
space that we're making. It's a space where a lot of work is happening. A lot of people are represented and there's a lot of good stuff happening because we have a very, we have a shared resource model. I would like to see theater do that more because I think theater is really good at that. And I don't actually think that it will function in New York without a good healthy dose of that. So I'd like to see more of that. The thing that's standing in the way of that is real estate. Like the funding, crowdfunding has replaced the NEA in New York City. Crowdfunding has supported more work than the NEA, I think for the last four years in in New York City. So we should just get used to it. And if we want theater that's equitable and we want a space where we can hear from a lot of different artists, there's no shame in crowdfunding. In fact, if you're a person of means and you like the theater, you should be you should be putting your money out. You should be spending your money like you're spending it, like you're giving it to the various candidates that you're supporting right now. Candidates, they've got it. They figured it out, right? There's not a subsidy yet for candidates. So how have they figured out a way to not have only certain people that have the big money supporting the art, right? They figured it out. So theater can do that too. And it's fine. We can just like, we've already done it. We don't need to... But now we need to let go of the shame in that, right? So I want to see more embracing of like, of using spaces in smarter ways. Don't just make a big lobby for the sake of a big lobby and then have it sit empty. Figure out ways that the community can use it. And that means, that means thinking outside the box. Um, In terms of art, it's really hard to know. Because we don't know what's going to happen, you know, and theater is like responsive to what's happening. Something that I'm really proud of at the tank is when I program a show that's going to be produced by by the tank with another artist, I'm able to give so much, so many resources to that play and I can get it done in like six months. Most theaters are programming like a year to two years to three years out, the year minimum. So how politically relevant and like important of the moment can something that be, you know, with that much distance. Mm -hmm. So I like that, that I'm able to do that. I would like to see, I want to make, I want to have that catch on. You want to start that. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd like the tank to become, I'd like the tank to be valued in the way that PS was a few years ago before the transition. I'd like the tank to be seen as an important part of the ecosystem and, and spaces that support emerging artists the model seen, that you were talking about right seen as an important part of the ecosystem and i think the people that have been doing this for years recognize that but um but there's a real lack particularly in manhattan so i would like to see that continue to be recognized um in terms of my own work and well or in terms of my own goal i mean my goal is tied to the tank i would like I want the tank to grow, but I don't want it to grow too much. <laughs> Do you know? Like, I don't want to get... You don't want to fall into traps exactly. of the... Where it eats a snake eating yeah. its own tail. But I would like it to grow a little bit so it's a little more comfortable, you know? But but I think we have a pretty great model, and I'd like to um, see it, you know, continue for the next 20 years. So... Beyond 10. Beyond 10. We... Oh. Always ask our guests as a final question, what was the last great piece of theater that you saw? You know, Caitlin Sailor Stevens would murder me if I said this because, um, but uh, I think, yeah, Black Exhibition 
I saw it at, at the Bushwick Star. I thought that was pretty great. I gave, I stood up. What um, was it about? Um, it's, um, it was just very brave and just uh, very theatrical. And um, uh, yeah, it didn't give a fuck. And I liked it. Cool. I love that you said that you stood up because I feel like the culture has become at the end, everyone stands up. Yeah. I think, I, I don't think everybody was standing up, but I was. <laughs> I stood up. I feel like the what? That's another. The, that's another conversation. Yeah, I no, mean, it definitely is. Y- at that point, if, you're you're not. If you sit down, you just can't even see bows anymore. Yeah. That, yeah. That's so you're standing up because you, you just want to watch see, them bow. Yeah, you just want to see what's happening. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, I would say that even though Keelan Sailor Stevens would kill me. Great. Well, thank you for chatting thank with us. You. Thanks, Megan. Thanks thank for having you. us at the Tank. Yes. This was an immersive podcast for us. We- <laughs> so great. Yes. Can I can I plug my shows or can I have Absolutely. you guys plug my shows for Please. me? Please. Can I save them? And yeah, then... go for it. Yeah. Okay. So in March, I'm uh yeah I'm directing um, Greg Codis's uh, new musical with Greg Codis who did You're in Town. It's gonna be here at the Tank. It's called I Am Nobody. Um, it's a brand new musical, so we're doing that. Uh, I'm doing um, a remount of When We Went Electronic at in Jersey City. That was great great play that you did so we're doing it again in jersey city so please bring your friends in new jersey um and it's going to be at art house there um and drita is just a beast of of theater she's so good um and then uh so we're remounting that in march and april so it's going to run for 12 performances at art house and then i'm doing a piece in houston with nick flynn who is a well-regarded poet and writer um and yeah, it's called. Um, it's a, it's a com- collection of William Blake um, poetry um, set in these in an immersive experience in an, a bunch of silos that have been converted into a gallery space, and that is going to be at the Countercurrent Festival in April. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. All right, bye. Bye. <laughs> oh, perfect timing. <laughs> I'm leaving that. <laughs> Great. All right, guys. Slow fade. No. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of Page to Stage. To keep up with us, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Page to Stage Podcast. And if you're enjoying these conversations, we would really appreciate it if you could take a couple minutes to rate and review us wherever you're listening to this podcast. Until next time. That's Brian. That's Mary. And we'll see you later. Bye. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network.